Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly, and I am back today with another murder case for you all. Before we dive into the details of this case, I do just want to take a minute to give it a little bit of a disclaimer because the topic may be very hard for some to handle. This episode will contain details about a murdered pregnant woman who was murdered for the sole purpose to have her unborn baby stolen. As you can see from the title of this episode, there are two deaths in this case, and that includes the unborn baby. Again, I know the death of a child or an infant is very hard for many to listen to, and I completely understand, but on top of that, this was also a very brutal and violent attack on the mother. All in all, it can be just a very triggering case, and I just want to say, if you need to skip this one, I completely understand, and I get it. So with the disclaimer out of the way, let's go ahead and get into the details of this case. Today, we are going to be talking about the brutal murder of Reagan Hancock and her unborn child, Braxlin. Reagan Hancock was born on November 14, 1998 in New Hope, Arkansas to her parents Jessica and Brandon. Her parents did end up divorcing not long after her birth, but despite this, she was very close with her family and grew up with several siblings. Both of her parents got into new relationships with other people, and so she had this large family on both sides. Those who knew and loved Reagan said that she was a very happy and joyful person, and she just had this big heart of gold. Her mother, Jessica, said that her daughter was the type of person that if she knew you and she loved you, that she would love you with her entire heart. Reagan was also someone who became fast friends with people because of her big heart, so she had a lot of friends. She had an extremely close relationship with her mom, Jessica. They had that type of mother-daughter relationship where they would talk to each other every single day. Whether it was on the phone or just by text message, they would literally speak throughout the entire day. When Reagan was a teenager, she met a guy by the name of Homer Hancock, and the two fell in love. Prior to getting married, the couple had their first child, which was a little girl that they named Kinley. When you look at Reagan's Facebook, you can just tell that she absolutely adored her little family. And it was clear that little Kinley was her pride and joy, and she loved to be a mom. 
In July of 2019, Homer asked Reagan to marry him, and they did a cute little photo shoot to announce their engagement. And in these pictures, sweet little Kinley, who was a toddler by this point, can be seen wearing a shirt that says, Mommy, will you marry my daddy? In September of 2019, Homer and Reagan tied the knot. On August 16th, 2020, on August 16th, 2020, Reagan posted online to her Facebook an announcement that read, quote, some of you know, some of you don't, but we are having another sweet baby girl come November 10th. She already acts like her daddy and big sister. We cannot wait for our Braxlin Sage to be here. Daddy is definitely outnumbered, end quote. She also included a handful of emojis and two sonogram pictures of sweet baby Braxlin. It was clear that Reagan and her husband Homer were very excited about this new addition. They were in such a good place in life with their little family living in New Boston, Texas, They had recently bought a home. They were adding this sweet baby girl. Everything was going perfect. So backing up a little bit, prior to that cute photo shoot I mentioned for Reagan and Homer's engagement, Reagan had been in touch with a photographer over Facebook when she was trying to find someone to take those pictures for them. And she came across a woman by the name of Taylor Parker. They arranged for Taylor to take those pictures, and after that, Reagan and Homer used Taylor to take their wedding photos as well. Though the two women would sometimes chat on Facebook, they weren't super close, but they were friends and remained in touch after Taylor took their pictures. Taylor Parker was also a mom to two children that she had with her first husband named Tommy Way Casey. After her second child was born, Taylor had to have a tubal ligation. And in 2015, she had to get a medically necessary hysterectomy. And though I think most people know, but if you don't know, a hysterectomy is a partial or total surgical removal of the uterus. This can also involve the removal of the cervix, ovaries, and fallopian tubes. When this procedure is done, women who have had this can no longer conceive and carry their own babies. And because this procedure was medically necessary for Taylor, she was pretty distraught over it. Because according to her ex-husband Tommy, though Taylor had two kids, she wanted to have more. Now, from my understanding, the relationship between Tommy and Taylor was always fairly rocky, and one of the biggest issues between them was that it appeared that Taylor was a pathological liar. So with things already on the rocks and this hysterectomy causing even more strain for Taylor, the two ended up calling it quits on the marriage and filing for divorce. It wasn't long after the end of this marriage that Taylor found herself meeting another man named Hunter Parker, and she ends up marrying Hunter. 
According to Hunter, in the entire time he was in a relationship with Taylor, she never told him that she could no longer have children, nor did she tell him that she had a hysterectomy. He also recalls that Taylor would frequently lie about different medical problems, including seizures, and that she did so to gain some sort of sympathy from him and to make him stay with her. Not only did Taylor lie to the men in her life, but she lied to the friends that she had. Some of her friends knew that she couldn't have more children, but they didn't know that it was because she had a hysterectomy. Instead, she told a few friends that it was because she had uterine cancer. And this is just the beginning of some of the lies that she told to people. She had told people about miscarriages she had. She had claimed that she was pregnant with twins at one point. She even had told a lie about having a stillbirth. It was just lies upon lies that this woman told to ultimately get people to feel bad for her. It would later come out there were no records of any of these stories that she had told, and so they obviously determined that they were all lies. But Taylor would literally lie about anything and everything, and it was because of this that the marriage between Hunter and her ended in April of 2019. And after this marriage, she quickly moved on to the next man. This man was named Wade Griffin. Wade would later state in court that his relationship with Taylor was an emotional roller coaster from the beginning. When Taylor's ex-husband Hunter heard that she was dating, he reached out to Wade's younger brother and pretty much tried to warn him to tell his brother to stay away from Taylor. Wade's younger brother took this information to their mom, Connie, unsure of what to do with it. And she naturally was very concerned and felt like something with this entire relationship was off. When Connie approached her son, Wade, with this information, he did not take it well. He was pretty defensive, and in his mind, his family was trying to break up his new relationship with this pretty new girl. Later in court, Connie would testify that when she first met Taylor, she thought that she was very personable and that her whole family began to grow and love Taylor because she just had a way of drawing you in. But as the relationship went on, Connie started to think that maybe Taylor and Wade weren't really on the same page. She said that Taylor seemed to want a close relationship, but she couldn't tell if her son really wanted that or if he was just trying to stand back and keep his distance from her. She stated that there was some red flags, and one of those was that Taylor didn't have custody of her son. So backing up a little bit here, when the relationship with Wade began, Taylor did not waste any time with her lies. And these lies weren't just things about different medical conditions. She had told him that she was an heiress and that she had enough money to purchase a multi-million dollar pecan farm. 
Wade was so excited for this opportunity, and at the family Christmas gathering, he and Taylor made a huge announcement to the family about their upcoming purchase, and they made it into this big, huge ordeal, and they passed out these cards with a pecan glued on it, and they told his avid duck hunting family that they'll never have to worry about finding a hunting lease again. This was such a huge announcement that Connie recorded them telling the family, and this would later be played in court. But at this point in time in their relationship when this announcement happened, Connie didn't have these like super bad feelings about Taylor at this point, and so this was, for her, an exciting moment for them as well. When the pecan farm lie started to crumble, she came up with another lie. She told Wade that her mother had stolen her inheritance and she hired a hitman who attempted to kill her and Wade. But apparently she told him that she had her own private detective who, I guess, ruined the plan for this alleged hitman to come and kill them. But that was the reasoning that this pecan ordeal fell through, according to Taylor. After that, Taylor had shown up with a new car that she said that she bought for Connie, and this car was a metallic gray Nissan Altima Platinum, which this apparently was the car that Connie had been wanting. Taylor purchased this car as a surprise for Connie, but after a few weeks of her driving it around, Taylor called Wade to tell him that he needed to have his mom bring the car to their home and leave it in the driveway because the dealership was coming to pick the car up because there was a recall on the brake pedal. Come to find out, Taylor never purchase that car. Weeks after the car had been taken to the dealership, Connie called to do a follow-up on the car, and that was when she learned that the money for that car that Taylor was supposed to process or whatever never came through. So it wasn't taken for a recall, it was taken because it was repossessed. Connie stated in court that this was the moment that she realized that something was seriously wrong with Taylor Parker. When things seemed to really begin to fall apart for Taylor, that is when she announced at the end of 2019 that she was pregnant. Like her last husband, Wade had no idea that Taylor had a hysterectomy in 2015. Taylor told everyone that her due date was September 22nd, 2020. And right off the bat, Wade Griffin's mother did not believe it. Actually, many of her friends, his friends, and his family did not believe this story. And Wade's mom just assumed that Taylor would eventually fake a miscarriage And she believed that when that would happen, the relationship between her son and Taylor would end. Once more, Taylor continued on with her elaborate lie. 
and she did so by faking urine tests to prove that she was pregnant, and she also had reused some of her old sonograms from her first two children, and she showed these things to Wade saying it was their baby. She truly was pregnant. Other people in Wade's life started to really question Taylor and her pregnancy, and she just continued to weave this web of lies, creating fake email accounts to email Wade from to just try and persuade things further. The further that Taylor got along in this alleged pregnancy, the more questions that would arise from not only Connie, but even Wade. At one point, Connie questioned why Taylor wasn't showing. And this was in like, I want to say July or August when Connie was like, why is Taylor not showing? Like she's supposedly due in September. Where's her baby belly? And when she asked her son that, he then went straight to Taylor and asked her like, why aren't you showing? You don't look like a normal pregnant woman. But naturally, Taylor had a quick lie to tell. She said that due to her having a tummy tuck years before, she didn't show like a normal pregnant woman. But Connie was like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, no way, that's not how this works. Magically, soon after this line of questioning, Taylor began showing. And that's because she went online and ordered a fake baby belly. Taylor ended up catching wind that Hunter, her ex-husband, was going around telling people that she was a big, fat liar. So Taylor, trying to cover her tracks, told everyone that he was just a jealous ex-husband who liked to make up rumors and lies about her because he was jealous that she had moved on and was happy. Taylor also said that Hunter was mad that through their divorce, Hunter didn't get any of her inheritance money, so he got really mean and nasty. With Wade feeling like this was all a hoax, he attempted to call the doctor's office that Taylor had said she had allegedly been going to for prenatal care. But he was told that due to HIPAA laws, they could not disclose any information to him about Taylor or her pregnancy, and they weren't even able to confirm or deny whether she was pregnant or a patient at their clinic. And I'm sure you're wondering, why didn't he go to these appointments that she said that she was going to? And let me remind you that this all took place in 2020. We all know how terrible 2020 was with COVID, but especially when it came to doctor's visits. During this time, if you had an appointment, you could not take anyone else into the clinics with you. I remember feeling really sad for some of my pregnant friends because I knew that these women had to go to these appointments without their significant others. I had friends who got to hear their baby's heartbeat for the first time, and they had to do that alone without their husband or significant other due to the COVID restrictions. 
So this timing of COVID really worked in Taylor's favor because they were not allowing anyone else into the clinics unless you were being seen by a doctor. And Taylor completely used that to her advantage and she used it to keep her lies going. So through all of this fake pregnancy, Taylor did it all. She had a gender reveal party where it was revealed that she was pregnant with a little girl. She announced that she was naming the baby Clancy Gale. And she and Wade even took maternity photos. On July 9th, she posted to Facebook a picture of a sonogram saying how big the baby was measuring and that they were scheduled for a 3D ultrasound on July 30th. This woman was literally doing everything that she could to sell this pregnancy and the lies just kept coming. It literally blows my mind to think about the lengths that she went to to lie about all of this, to do whatever she could to convince everyone that this was the real meal deal. Eventually, word of this pregnancy reached Taylor's first husband, Tommy, and he took it upon himself to reach out to Wade through text messages anonymously. On September 16th, so like a week before Taylor's alleged due date, Tommy texts Wade and says, quote, I'm reaching out to you because I feel like it's the ethical thing to do. In 2015, Taylor had a hysterectomy. She is not pregnant. She can't get pregnant. She is a con artist and is lying to keep you around, end quote. Tommy also had told Wade that people had made the local hospitals aware of Taylor making up this lie, and they knew to look out for her. Once more, Wade is questioning everything. He has all of these people around him, including his family, co-workers, and even close friends, all saying Taylor is lying. But Taylor keeps assuring him that she is pregnant and providing him with her quote-unquote proof. So he screenshot these messages that were sent to him by Tommy anonymously, and he sends them to Taylor. She once more blames everyone else, said it's likely her ex-husband or her mom who she had at this point made up so many lies about, and that they're all just lying to him and she was the only one that was telling the truth. If I'm being honest here, this all sounds so exhausting. I don't know how she could keep up with this facade, but she was so desperate to do so. It was around this time when Tommy made this contact that Taylor's Google searches got intense. She began researching home births, and she also began searching for different hospitals that were outside of her immediate area, since they had all been notified that she was faking this pregnancy. And some of the people who told the hospitals were people that she had previously worked with. 
Taylor had previously worked at a Northeast Texas women's health clinic, and she made friends who knew of her hysterectomy. It was these friends who notified doctors within that clinic who then notified the hospitals about this situation. On top of this searching that Taylor was doing, she also began Googling and watching YouTube videos on how to perform a C-section. Now, on September 30th, which was eight days after Taylor's alleged due date, Taylor went to a clinic in Paris, Texas. This was her first time visiting this clinic, so she had some routine paperwork to fill out as most new patients do. While in the lobby filling out this paperwork, a receptionist saw her crying, so she approached her to check to see if she was okay. Taylor told this woman that her husband, Wade, who was the father of her unborn child, had recently died in the military. She stated that she needed to reschedule her appointment because she was just too emotional to be there. Of course, this was one more of her lies because Wade absolutely was not in the military and he was for sure not dead. And you may wonder, if she was faking this entire pregnancy, why would she have gone to a clinic to begin with? Those that worked at the clinic later recalled seeing Taylor that same day in the parking lot of the clinic looking at license plate numbers of the women who would come and go for their appointments. So at this point, Taylor is eight days past her alleged due date. And as most people know... If you go past your due date a certain amount of time, your doctor will induce you. Taylor informed Wade and everyone else that she was set to have an induction on October 6th. The morning of her induction, Wade's house that Taylor had also been staying at caught fire, which knocked out the plumbing and the power. Then there was a bomb threat that had been called into the hospital, and this entire thing made the news. Wade and Taylor went over to his mom's house to take a shower the day after this bomb threat and fire. And while Taylor was in the shower, his mom pulled him aside and told him that something wasn't right. He confronted Taylor and told her straight up, my mom doesn't believe a single thing that you're saying. She doesn't believe that you're pregnant. And all of these people are saying the same exact thing. And he pretty much tells her that he doesn't not want to believe his mom. And he straight up tells her, like, things here are not adding up with you. This caused a huge fight between the two of them, and she told Wade that she was going to prove to everyone that they were wrong that coming Friday, and that she was finally going to have her baby. Now, during all of this fiasco with the bomb threat and this fire, and the days prior to all of this, Taylor had begun texting Reagan Hancock. Taylor had reached out to Reagan telling her that she had a baby gift for her. 
On the night of October 8th, 2020, Taylor went over to the Hancock household where she gave Reagan this gift and brought her Starbucks as well. Homer had been home on that evening and he recalled that the two women just hung out chatting at the kitchen table. Reagan had posted on Facebook to Taylor, quote, So glad I got to see you today. Missed you bunches. Also, thank you for the sweet gift and Starbucks, end quote. The following morning on October 9th, Homer woke up early to head to work like any normal day, leaving behind Reagan and their three-year-old daughter at home. That morning, Reagan and Taylor exchanged text messages between 7.22 a.m. and 7.52 a.m. And Reagan had also been texting with Homer up until about 8.30 a.m. Homer said that the day seemed a little bit different than normal because Reagan usually texted him pretty frequently, but those messages weren't really happening on this very morning after that 8.30 mark. He kind of thought that maybe she had fallen back asleep or she was busy dealing with their daughter. But he was surprised to get a text message around 9.15 from a neighbor saying that their dog had gotten out of the house and was outside in their front yard. Homer tried to call and text Regan repeatedly and she didn't text back nor did she answer. Something felt off, obviously, about this, so he called Reagan's mom, Jessica, and asked her if she could go over to the house to check on her. And again, Homer was at work on that morning. His place of employment was a good distance from their home. His mother-in-law was also at work, but she worked much closer to the Hancock household and she would have been able to get there before Homer would have ever been able to get there. Jessica agreed that she would go over there and she immediately left work, but on her way towards her daughter's home, she swung into the place where Kinley went to daycare to see if she had been there. In her mind, she knew that if Kinley wasn't at daycare, then there was something that was wrong. She was horrified to find out that Reagan never dropped Kinley off that morning. After leaving the daycare place, Jessica called her husband Marcus to tell him that something wasn't right and that she was going to go to the police station to tell them that something was wrong. But he told her that she should just go straight over to the house instead because they didn't know for sure if something was wrong. Maybe Reagan had overslept. Maybe they were sick. Surely nobody was expecting the worst. But Jessica was about to walk into a horrific scene. Regan Hancock's mother was rushing to get to her daughter's home in hopes to find that this was all a misunderstanding. When she turned the corner onto Austin Street, her stomach sank seeing that the garage door to the home was open, which was unlike her daughter or her son-in-law. They never left the garage open. 
She quickly parked, and when she stepped out of her car, she had seen that there was streaks of blood in the driveway. She tried to tell herself that maybe it was from someone's pet having a cut on their paw and then the pet walking across the driveway. But when she stepped into the garage, she saw more streaks of blood on the garage floor as she approached the door to the house. She noticed a bloody fingerprint on the doorknob, so she used her shirt to turn the knob and opened the door just barely enough for her to peer inside. She saw a bloody shoe print on the kitchen floor, and she quickly backed out, shutting the door in a horrified shock. Jessica later recalls on stand thinking, if my baby is in there and she's hurt, I've got to get to her. So she opened the door once more and went inside to a very, very bloody and violent scene. She found her daughter face down on the living room floor with her arms over her head. One of the first thing that registered with Jessica was the fact that Reagan's once bright blonde hair was now stained red with blood. The kitchen was a disaster along with the house, which were due to a very serious struggle that had taken place. As Jessica stood there in shock, she said that the house was eerily quiet and that she was too terrified to look for her three-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter because she was scared of what she would find. She said that she fell to her knees screaming and crying and then realized that she needed to call 911. Jessica's husband, Marcus, was the second person to arrive at the house. Jessica begged him not to go inside of the house because she didn't want him to see Reagan like that. But he went in and quickly came back out with his hand over his mouth, collapsing to the ground, screaming, why, why, why? The next thought he instantly had was where was Kinley? But like his wife, he also felt like he couldn't bear to go back inside that house. After a few moments, Marcus began yelling out for Kenley, and he heard a faint response. Chris Hughes, who was a friend of Marcus that came with him to Reagan's home, was the one who went inside the home at that point to find little Kenley, because Marcus couldn't bring himself to step past Reagan's lifeless body. Marcus went into the home, stepped around Regan's body, through the pools of blood, and went down the hallway looking into each room calling for Kinley. Finally, he found her in the back bedroom where she was scared hiding under a blanket on her bed. When she peered out from under her blanket, she realized it was Marcus, who was a known person to the entire family. She stood up and ran to him. He picked her up, put a blanket over her head, and carried her out of the house through the front door so she wouldn't see her mother lying on the living room floor. Shortly after that, Reagan's husband arrived at the house and he tried to go inside, but Marcus and Chris held him back from doing so. When the medical examiner arrived on scene, they got a closer look at Reagan, and it had appeared that she had been beaten in the head. 
authorities found a four-pound jar of sand that had been from Reagan and Homer's wedding near Reagan's body, and they believed that it had been used to bludgeon Reagan. Also, they felt that along with the jar of sand used to bludgeon her, they thought it was likely that both sides of a hammer was also used. It was very clear that this attack took place throughout the entire home as Reagan likely tried to fend off her attacker. Reagan had defensive wounds on her arms and hands. She had suffered five skull fractures and a broken nose and over 100 stab wounds. During her autopsy, they found a scalpel buried in her neck, and this was what they believed had been used to stab Reagan over a hundred times. Once Reagan was rolled over at the scene, they found that she had been cut hip to hip, her uterus had been removed and cut open. Baby Braxlin and the placenta were completely gone. Unknown to those at the scene of the crime, a woman who was driving erratically had been seen by police at 9.36 a.m., and they started to follow her before pulling her over, which this was about 30 minutes before Jessica arrived to Reagan's house and found her daughter. Now, that woman that was driving erratically, as you can guess, was Taylor Parker. And before she got pulled over, she called 911 and said that she had a state trooper following behind her and that she was going to need an ambulance. She told the 911 operator that she started having her baby in the car and that she needed an ambulance to rush her to Idabel because that was where her doctor was. Now, what is absolutely crazy is that this operator was the same 911 operator who took the call from Jessica 30 minutes later. Now, Taylor pulls over to the side of the road and she begins waving her hand out the window. The officer approached the car and he saw that in Taylor's lap was a newborn baby with the umbilical cord still attached. Taylor told him that she had just had her baby and that she was trying to get to the hospital in Idabel because that was where her doctor was. Taylor also was crying and had blood all over her, including her shoes, face, and clothing. Now, this officer didn't think anything of all of this blood because in his mind, Taylor just had this baby. Taylor had claimed that she was shopping at Walmart in New Boston when she started to feel pelvic pressure. She said that she left the store and by the time she got into her car, the baby was well on her way and she delivered the baby right there alone in her car. An ambulance arrived and took Taylor and the baby towards the hospital. While riding in the ambulance, Taylor kept insisting that she needed to go to the hospital in Idabel, but there was one that was closer that the EMTs were trying to talk her into going to because the baby was in clear need of medical attention. But Taylor refused, and so they took her to the hospital in Idabel. 
Now, going back to the scene of the crime, when the authorities realized that this unborn child had been cut from her mother and kidnapped, they put out an alert for authorities telling them to just look out for a newborn baby. And they learned really fast that there was an infant that had been reported for cardiac arrest. And at this point, things started to kind of connect and make sense. Authorities started to head towards Idabel to see if what they believed was true. Now, during this ambulance ride, there were things that were noted that seemed like red flags. And one of those was that the amniotic fluid that had been on the baby was dry and flaky, which indicated that this wasn't a baby that had just been born within minutes like Taylor had stated. Also, the officers who stopped Taylor that got a better look at the inside of her car noticed that the car was clean from any amniotic fluid as well as blood minus the blood that was on Taylor. Once they arrived at the hospital, the hospital staff began working on both Taylor and the baby because the baby wasn't breathing, nor did she have a pulse. The nurses right off the bat also noticed that Taylor had zero signs to indicate that she had recently been in labor. They said that when they felt her stomach to check her uterus, that it didn't feel like a normal uterus that had just had a baby. And she wasn't actively bleeding like a woman does after birth. They also blood tested Taylor and found that there wasn't a single trace of the pregnancy hormone that should have been present in her system. Baby Braxlin had gone too long without oxygen and had suffered extreme brain damage. She was taken off life support and declared dead at 1.22 p.m. With all of the inconsistencies in Taylor's story and the fact that there was a woman who had just been murdered and her baby literally ripped from her womb, they knew that this baby wasn't Taylor's and DNA testing had confirmed that. Later that day on October 9th, 2020, Taylor Parker was arrested for the murder of Reagan Hancock and the kidnapping of her baby. And you'll be surprised to hear that Taylor did in fact admit that she killed Reagan, and she admitted that she cut the baby out of Reagan's stomach. But of course, being the pathological liar that she is, she claimed that this was because this was what Reagan had wanted. The story that Taylor told police was that she had gone over to Reagan's house that morning and Reagan and her ended up getting into some sort of physical altercation. She said that during this altercation, Reagan had pushed Taylor to the ground. And according to Taylor, during this huge altercation, Reagan was severely injured and that she was injured so badly that she supposedly asked Taylor to cut the baby out of her to save the child. This whole thing was debunked fairly quickly once the investigation into Taylor really began. 
They learned of this entire fake pregnancy. They learned how much she lied. They learned that she couldn't even carry babies ever again. They learned about it all. On top of that, they learned all about those Google searches that Taylor had been doing in the weeks and months leading up to the murder including Googling things like where do pregnant women gather outside of a hospital. Taylor had been so invested in trying to find a pregnant woman who was carrying a baby girl. But instead of looking super hard, she settled for Reagan, who she knew on a personal level. The murder trial began in September of 2022, and the jury heard the most gruesome details of the case, including an investigator who said that the scene was the bloodiest and most violent scene that he had ever seen in his career. The jury took about 90 minutes to come back with a guilty verdict, and in November of 2022, she was sentenced to death. Taylor Parker is currently one of seven women who are on death row in Texas. An article that was released by Newsbreak last month details how Taylor's manipulative and compulsive lying hasn't stopped while behind bars. While in the Bowie County Jail, she was a difficult and disruptive inmate. The prosecutor stated that the jail had to change its policies and procedures because of her. Allegedly, Taylor had fabricated grievances, medical conditions, and created issues with other inmates and correctional officers while there. The article also stated that Taylor has made false medical claims and demands for unnecessary medical care. But since she's been transferred to death row, Taylor spends 23 hours a day inside of a single-person 60-square-foot prison cell, and I absolutely hope she is miserable. Reagan Hancock was only 21 years old when she was tragically murdered and her unborn baby cut out of her. She had so much life left to live with her husband and her daughter, Kinley. What is absolutely tragic is that authorities believe that little Kinley at some point had been around her mother's dead body, and they had found a soiled pull-up lying in a pool of blood, as well as urine on the couch, which they believed came from the toddler. That absolutely breaks my heart that she was exposed to such a horrific scene. And if she hadn't seen it, she for sure heard it. This case is absolutely heartbreaking. And it blows my mind that Taylor Parker thought that this was just going to work out for her. I don't ever understand how anyone thinks that they can get away with murder, but to murder a pregnant woman and steal their baby as their own. And what's crazy is this is the second case that I have covered like this. My heart truly goes out to all of Reagan's family, Homer, and to little Kinley. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. 
In there, we share all information pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. You can also find us over on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you'd like more true crime content, you can follow me on TikTok at the same username of crimeaholics.podcast. Lastly, if you wish to follow me personally, you can do so by finding me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's case. Kinsey will be back Monday with another Missing Monday. Until next time, be aware and take care.